You're listening to the H Society Podcast, presented by Hurex Digital, a weekly podcast featuring prominent thought leaders in the world of professional societies, associations, and nonprofit organizations. Discover actionable ways these people are making their organizations valuable for their members through digital technology, publishing, and continuous education. No fluff. Tune in to hear best practices and tactical solutions from the best thought leaders and practitioners in the association and nonprofit world today. Welcome to the latest episode of the H Society podcast by Hurex Digital. We hope this will be a thought-provoking and entertaining series. My name is Scott Hansen, and I head the Boston office of Hurex Digital where I manage our society and association client relationships. Before we get going, I want to mention that today's episode is brought to you by your friends at Herex Digital, a cloud-based content platform to create, publish, and distribute interactive mobile-ready content. Today's guest is Jason Miller. He's the Chief Operating Officer at the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Uh, Feeling an ache already. (laughs) Jason and I met several decades ago when we both worked for Blackwell Science Publishers in Boston. Jason was on the journal side and I was on the book side, Uh, but somehow we still managed to forge a a good working relationship. So Jason, welcome. Thanks, Scott. Good morning. Good morning. So Jason, I thought maybe if you could just give us a little background on your, your past and work history and all the different places you've worked and stuff. I think it's very interesting. Great. Thanks. Uh, Happy to be here. And um, so, as you mentioned, uh, you and I crossed paths uh, when we both worked for Blackwell Science. I think I joined that organization in in 97. Prior to that, um, I had been the managing editor um, for a nursing journal uh, the uh, at the time called the Intravenous Nurses Society, uh, since been cho- changed to the Infusion Nurses. And that was uh, published by uh, Lippincott, uh, which has which since that time been acquired by Walter Spluer. So I was there, then I was at Blackwell. I joined uh, Nature Publishing Group in 2003, and then uh, subsequently joined Elsevier and ran their orthopedics uh, journals publishing group until 2015, when the opportunity to join JBJS came up after sort of a formal RFP process of JBJS moving from the history of uh, an entire history of self-publication to working with uh, with with a publisher, um, and I've been with JBJS since 2015. Right. Can you uh, give our listeners a little uh, overview of JBJS and and how it is or was? A little bit tied in with AAOS, if I'm correct. Yes, uh, and the AOA, actually. So, um, yeah, so JBJS uh, started out as uh, the primary uh, scientific journal in orthopedic surgery. First first issue published in 1889. So we've been around for uh, a few days and uh, remained a single journal, the official publication of the American Orthopedic Association into the 1950s, um, and then became an independent uh, nonprofit organization, um, just the journal itself. And in the early 2000s, became the official publication of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons uh, through a contract with the Academy. 
And in sort of the early 2010s, the the organization sort of, I don't want to say changed directions, but expanded the mission and uh, launched a handful of, of what we refer to as the daughter journals. So JBJS is, is the flagship, our primary. We have a reviews title. Uh, we have a case cases journal. Uh, we have a, a, a video journal, Essential Surgical Techniques. We then acquired in 2016 the Journal of Orthopedics for Physician Assistance. So we actually published for that market. Um, and then in 2017, sort of joined the party kind of late to my mind, but uh, we launched JBJS Open Access. So we, we publish across the spectrum. And our, our mission has also expanded over the last uh, decade and a half we offer uh, CME, journal-based, mostly CME, so you can read for credit or take um, exams on questions that are developed from our content. We are a uh, certified provider of continuing medical education. Um, and in the last three or four years, we've also, through a partnership with Mark Miller, who had started 26 years ago, the Miller Review course for orthopedic residents. Uh, coming out of their, their fifth year of residency and before they took their written exam, um, we've acquired the, the Miller Review course MRC and have run that for the last three years. So that, that has helped us with our relationships with uh, orthopedic residents. So we sort of start from right at the beginning of their career, take them through the end of their career. Interesting. I think I know the answer to this, but the mission and purpose of JBAS yeah, so JBJS, our, our, our mission is to educate uh, the orth orthopedic surgery community toward the end of improving patient care. It's a, it's a really simple mission. Everything we do is about uh, making certain that orthopedic surgeons have access to the material, the content, and uh, the evidence, the, the clinical evidence that will allow them to Im improve clinical practice. So was, uh, was JBJS always in Boston? Yeah, interestingly, um, so JBJS was actually, when it was started, the editorial process, I mean, it, it, there, there wasn't, if you will, um, uh, an office, um, but it was a little bit of shared space with both Harvard University and the Massachusetts Medical Society. Um, and there was a long history of the organizations being linked. And up until uh, sort of the late 70s or early 1980s, the, they had office space shared with um, MMS at uh, the Cowley Library at, at Harvard Medical. Hmm. Um, I'm going to jump a little ahead, but speaking of that, I believe maybe you can uh, talk about your, uh, well, at least former partnership with the New England Journal. Yeah, so we've, we've often, I mean, given our sort of geographic connections. Um, we've, we've, we've had a lot to do with the New England Journal of Medicine over the years um, from, uh, you know, working closely on editorial development to the exchange of, of employees. But uh, five years ago, we actually had the opportunity to launch um, a new education platform, sort of an adaptive learning platform um, aimed at orthopedic residents, but continuing 
medical education throughout the orthopedist's uh, career. Um, New England Journal had worked with a Danish company called Arian 9 to develop an adaptive learning platform. They had sort of the, the rights to the individual platform. Area 9 was the technology partner. JBJS was asked uh, by Area 9 to develop the orthopedic uh, sort of piece. Um, and JBJS Clinical mm-hmm. Classroom uh, was born out of that. We took the better part of 18 months to outline the orthopedic curriculum. What what does an orthopedic surgeon in all the subspecialty areas need to know in order uh, to improve and maintain practice? Um, Our editor-in-chief, Mark Swinkowski, was in charge of organizing uh, in the 11 subspecialty, the primary 11 subspecialty areas um, of do again, outlining the curriculum, and then coming up with a series of, of questions in each that would test the knowledge and, and uh, guarantee the sort of uh, the practice uh, knowledge of orthopedic surgeons, be they in residency, in early practice, or in later practice. And the idea behind the adaptive learning technology is that wherever you are in your career, the platform adapts and allows the questions to flow based on your knowledge. So the, the early career orthopedic surgeon uh, will be asked a longer series of questions to, to, to gauge their competency. And the experienced orthopedic surgeon will sort of skip steps, if you will, move from sort of rung one to rung six to rung 10 uh, more quickly um, on the competency scale. So that, that's been a, a really uh, sort of enjoyable and a productive partnership with New England Journal of Medicine. And uh but today you're not you guys you're separate from them now is that correct? Yeah, so uh, so it was a it was a three part partnership to start with. New England Journal had the the platform they had paid for they had worked through the development of the platform. Area Nine was the technology partner. Um, we're now on the second phase, so it's a, a Rapsode Area Nine Rapsode platform, which is the again the next phase platform. So we're still it's still adaptive learning. We're still producing uh, JBJS Clinical Classroom. Um, it's just we've moved off of uh, the the new the NEJM group uh, platform for that. But we still work. We still we still talk. Uh, with NEJM group ab- about development of the platform. We still have regular updates. Uh, we're still selling into the same institutional markets. Uh, they're selling in the internal medicine and family practice and pediatrics areas. And obviously we're, we're selling into the orthopedic surgery side. And not to beat this to death, but um, having worked uh, with the AAOS, American, Associate, American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, how do you work or not work with them? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's sort of the, uh, it's, it's a, <laughs> it's a difficult history. It's orthopedics is one of the, one of the exception areas. Most major associations or society uh, societies own the primary journal in that that specialty area. The ACC, dermatology, urology, the main associations, the large associations own the primary journal. Orthopedics happens to be one of those areas where uh, before anybody knew that that scholarly publishing was big business, if you will, they they separated uh, the journal itself um, and the editorial work for the journal from the association and its membership for, for no other reason than it worked 
that way at the time. Mm-hmm. We have over the years uh, done many different things, uh, publishing activities and other with the Academy. We are currently not sort of partnering on, on any major initiatives. The, the Academy, you know, they hold, they hold the large annual meeting. Uh, they, they do have a couple of journals in their portfolio, sort of a reviews journal and a, an open access journal. They also have a platform that, uh, that, that serves the same education needs for residents and practicing surgeons. They, in addition, have a training, um, a training meeting for residents coming out of their, uh, coming out of their residency before they take the, the written exam. Um, so we compete in many areas, but it's a friendly competition. We do, we still do talk. Um, we just don't have any ongoing partnerships at the moment. Okay. Since you uh, are a little bit different than some of our, our guests to this podcast, you've worked for both for-profit and nonprofit. Any high-level generalizations about the difference Good or bad? Uh, yeah, I don't think I'll. I don't think I'll make a judgment call. I will say they're oil and water. <laughs> um, yeah. It, you know, having having spent uh, sort of the mid part of my career, if you will, um, working for uh, large for profit publishers, there's there's an efficiency, there's uh, a drive for production. There's bigger is better, and that's I don't mean that in a negative sense at all. But the more that we can produce the better for those that are buying content from us. In the, in the nonprofit uh, world, it is more focused on mission. Uh, certainly for JBJS, our mission, again, primary is sort of providing the educational material to improve patient care. That's, that mm-hmm. really is our mission. And everything we do is focused on that. And often, it is that there's there's not going to be a profit or there's not going to be a financial driver behind something we do. That's not to say that we're not interested in that. It's just that the business plan doesn't have to have how much, you know, how much profit there is at the end of a project as its primary driver. So I I, I would I would not say that one is better than the other. They just operate very differently. Yeah. So uh, in the same vein a bit, uh, your journal, you work with Walters Kluwer with your journal. What, what's it like? Uh, and this is not an area of grievances. I'm just curious yeah. what, you know, what's it like working with Walters Kluwer with your journal? Yeah, interestingly, having come from that side, right? I mean, this, the, I joined JBJS during uh, the RFP process when JBJS was making the transition from a history of self-publication to, to contract publishing with a large partner. Uh, you just mentioned Walter Schluer. So obviously Elsevier didn't win that contract. I've often said that the, you know, the, the happiest party out of that was, was me. <laughs> I, I got to move to JBJS because, because Elsevier didn't win uh, the bid on that RFP. Working with Walter Schluer has been, has been a, a really great thing for JBJS. Uh, institutional distribution through their Ovid platform, efficiencies on the production side, understanding how you you know the, the the sort of the more is the more is always better kind of perspective that the the more we can do efficiently the the more uh, we're going to have time resources to focus on our mission 
so I would say that um, that that our contract with the Walters Kluwer has been a significant net positive for the organization. Having said that, there have been some growing pains as a as a nonprofit organization. Your, your focus is not necessarily always on efficiency and having, having just the right number of staff to get the work done. Uh, so there have been some growing pains on our end, um, but again, net positive in working with Walters Kluwer. So uh, I guess I'm making a sweeping generalization here, but would, are most organizations like yours with the, the main journal tied in with a for-profit publisher? I, I I feel like most are, right? Yeah, that's I mean there's there's been a there's been a wave of a sort of the the larger organizations over the last I'll I'll space it out after the, over the last 15 to 20 years moving from self-publication. I mean, when I was at Nature, uh, the Journal of Urology went from self-publication and moved to Elsevier for a long-term contract. They have just in the last couple of years actually moved over to WK. Uh, WK has also in the last couple of years taken on the American Society for Clinical Oncology. That contract, they went from self-publication to working with a large publisher. Most of that um, over the last 15 to 20 years has been driven by institutional distribution and the, the big deal, if you will. Um, we're at the, I would say we're on the, we're on the downside of the bell curve <laughs> for uh, mm. the big deal. It's no longer seen as a, as a huge benefit at the institutional level. We have uh, organizations like CDL who dropped their big deal with Elsevier and sort of forced uh, the negotiation for the read and publish deal. Europe has led the way on this, right? Whole countries, Norway, Iceland, uh, they've moved away from sort of the big deal, the purchase of, of large databases from, from major publishers in favor of uh, sort of the, the we, we want to be able, we want to have access to everything, um, but can't pay for it in a way that says, you know, it's it volume, volume rules. So, I would say that there are still a handful of of journals, uh, New England Journal, JAMA, you know, still still self-published, but those are very large organizations. They're almost, you know, they're almost publishing houses in and of themselves. Those mm-hmm. of our size have over the last uh, sort of decade, decade and a half moved mostly to commercial publishing. And does open access affect this? Is that part of what's happening? I think um, I think the big sort of boogeyman of open access has been has been resolved somewhat, um, despite Plan S, despite Europe's sort of their whole plan to move away from any kind of what you would call hybrid open access to the full gold open and and read and publish deals. I think you know the the thing that was supposed to change the industry fifteen or twenty years ago has become another another piece of the operation, but has not completely flipped um, the industry on its head. Open as- access exists alongside subscription subscription access to uh, to to content. Most organizations, and I worked with many within orthopedics over the last you know over, over my time prior to JBJS, have at least launched some level of open access. Many organizations have done it as a way of moving case reports out of the primary journal and into um, a, a separate piece. We've also seen, you know, we've seen BMC, we've seen PLOS, we've seen commercial entities and uh, nonprofit organizations who are, who are wholly dedicated 
to open access. Um, but they, they've not been the disruptors that, that it was predicted they would be 10 to 15 years ago. You know, uh, talking to a, a colleague we both know um, about a year ago, and uh, I was working on something here at Urex, and I questioned to various people, and I may have asked you at the time, but what keeps you awake at night? And uh, his response was open access plan S, is that my, if I'm saying this right? Absolutely. That was what keeps him awake at night. Now, he's at a for-profit, so um, you know, probably is a different take. But uh, what keeps you awake at night? I would say sort of a, a related but other side of that, and that is institutional distribution of our content. The big deal was a was a real sort of, I don't know that it was a boon for, for any large publisher or for any association, but it, it sort of, you know, it kept the machine running and it offered some level of, while not significant, it offered some level of growth over time. I think institutions are waking up to the idea that this just can't, this balloon just can't keep expanding. Uh, at some point, <laughs> there has to be a contraction or there has to be an explosion of the balloon. Um, and and it's, it, it's manifested differently in different areas. I mentioned California Digital Library um, and their negotiation with Elsevier. They, they just threw their hands up and said, you can't continue to come back to us for more and more money every year. The Plan S from the from the EU, different national deals. So I, I think it's it's institutional distribution. And it isn't about for us necessarily falling off a cliff in terms of revenue. It's how do we maintain connection to those institutional users and how do we drive our mission? Um, if we don't have a, a personal one-on-one relationship with that individual user. We, we, of course, have our author community. That's sort of 8 to 15% um, of, our, of our readers. That, that's our primary. There are authors. There are, there are reviewers. There are editors uh, in, in a smaller sense. Um, but how do we maintain the connectivity again to those institutional users that don't necessarily see JBJS as the driver of clinical change? Um, they see it as one, you know, in a collection of content. Um, and, and so that's, that's sort of what, what keeps us, not necessarily me, but keeps the organization up at night. Um, you know, I, I meant to ask you in the beginning, so your organization, do you, is it, do you look at them as subscribers? Are they, are they're not really members then, right? They would be. Yeah. So we don't have a membership. Um, we have, and, and, and I think any journal that said they, they didn't want to move <laughs> to a to a membership model would be fooling themselves. Um, we do have subscribers, but because we're a, we're a certified provider of CME, um, because we have uh, the Miller Review course that we run um, every spring, uh, we also we we have buyers, we have subscribers, and we have we have purchasers. We of course would want to move. Um, to a model where somebody sees themselves as a as a as a partner or a member, a whole, whatever word you want to use of JBJS, where everything we produce um, is available to them, and and you know available toward the end. Sound like a broken record, but available toward toward our mission of of improving patient mm-hmm. care. Mm-hmm. Um, you touched on this a little bit briefly, but um, how would you say the budgeting process differs? 
from like an Elsevier to what you're doing today? Yeah, I mean, I think Elsevier, given given the volume, given the size, budgets are more about we can't have um, individual line items based on the the individual needs or the individual requirements of of every journal, every association, every society. So there's a there's a need to pack it in and more generalize about no everybody needs this and we're going to call it this even if it operates somewhat differently. Um, and and they are budget driven. I mean, it was not unusual in my time at Elsevier to get you know a message around this time of the year that uh, we have to put a halt on on client travel uh, because we've we've reached the, the end of our T and E budget. Um, whereas in in the nonprofit sector, it's it's much more focused on well, okay, that's outside of budget, but it's mission driven. So we we will we will attempt <laughs> to move budget from from other areas in order to cover that. But it's it really is about mission more so than it is about budget. Well, and probably the, uh, <clears throat> the finance people's defense, uh, you know, those wild, luxurious, uh, extraordinary uh, dinners and things, you know, maybe get to you know, cut back on that just a little bit, right? So, yeah, I don't know that I've ever experienced those. So that's the, uh, <laughs> except with you in New Orleans, Scott. That's the, that's the. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, right. We, we need somebody, uh, we'll, we'll see if we have time for that. That was a, that was a very, a, a great medical moment. <laughs> yes, we need to, we need to work again with the Endocrinology Society. I think that's. Yeah, right, that right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, obviously it's a bit of a, 800 pound gorilla in the room, I guess, but what we ask everybody is how has COVID and the pandemic affected your organization and things like conferences? And, well, and then you do so much uh, learning and training as well. So, yeah, I mean, at, at first it was, it was a real sort of shock to the system. And it was tough for us. We had a significant portion of our workforce, and we're we're you know we're a workforce force of about forty individuals, um, full time employees. We have hundreds of dedicated editorial staff as well. But in terms of our office, we're we're an office of about forty individuals, and we the majority of those people had some level of remote work availability prior to COVID. Um, almost everyone was able as the need arose to work remotely. No one, um, saving a couple of, of geographically distant employees, was a full-time remote employee. And so early days, March, April of 2020, it was a struggle for a technology group to sort of get those people that that were not set up. We, you know, emergency purchase of a couple of laptops and, and that kind of thing. So there was a little bit of pressure. I think we quickly realized, certainly by this time last year, that beyond the beyond the personal, beyond sort of the you know the the negatives of COVID itself, and and every one of us um, was affected. We had a we actually had a board of trustees member who was hospitalized um, for for COVID in in March of 2020. Spent the better part of eight weeks at Mass General. Um, and, and it was close. He, he was actually, he was on, uh, his story was aired on NPR. It was a big editorial in, in the Boston Globe. I mean, it was, it was a national story. If, if he had not been in Boston, 
and at uh, sort of the, the just the, the the region of the country where everything good to come out of it uh, was happening. Um, if there, if you could say there was anything, he might not have made it through. Yeah. So, so there, there were struggles for everyone. What we realized, however, was that the focus on work when, when people could and the time that they could dedicate in the remote setting, uh, we started to actually get more production. Um, we started, you know, people. This was prior to Zoom fatigue. We have COVID fatigue, but we also everybody's experienced Zoom fatigue. And prior to that. It was it was motivating to think. Okay, I do have this connection. I'm not alone. We have we have a few employees that do live on their own, um, and it was isolating. And I, and I think uh, mm-hmm. being able to spend a good part of your day every day connecting, even though it was over a screen, with other employees really helped. And it and it got them through. This time last year, we convened a, a small committee internally to try to figure out what we were going to do coming out of COVID. How how do we want or how do we need to have the office look coming out of it. And the decision was taken that no one was going to be forced to come back full-time into the office. No one was going to be told, nope, we're, this is post-COVID. You need to work just the way you did pre-COVID. No, nobody's the same mm-hmm. as they were before. Um, we're open. The office is fully open. People are invited uh, or, or have the, the opportunity to work from the office. Uh, we do have one member of the marketing staff who didn't miss a day. She didn't miss a single day throughout COVID. She does not like working from home. She worked within, you know, a, a reasonable driving distance of the office. And we have a couple of employees who have actually relocated during this time, and they're no longer within, uh, you know, the Boston region. So they now work full time remote. So mm-hmm. things have changed, uh, but I think we've we've come out of it stronger as an organization. We've learned some things, and at the the less important side. We've we've actually financially had uh, one of our 2020 turned into one of our best years uh, in a couple of decades for for many additional reasons. Um, but it, it production wise, the fact that orthopedic surgeons had more time to focus on education, mm-hmm. to focus on, you know, they were they were not in the OR for many months in 2020. They were closed. So so we took that opportunity to provide them with the things that they might not have had time to do otherwise. And uh, how about your conferences? I know you were recently uh, at a conference in San Diego. Uh, How has that been going? Yeah, so that was the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. They actually had to, so they canceled their 2020 meeting. They also canceled their 2021 meeting, but it was moved. So it was supposed to be in in March in San Diego. They moved it to just prior to Labor Day weekend um, in San Diego. It, it was an interesting, um, I think if it had been a couple months earlier, uh, it would have been a little more open. It would have been, but given Delta, mm-hmm. uh, we're, you know, we were a little bit more closed. But it honestly, it felt different, but good <laughs> to be in the exhibits area, to be in you know, the, 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 the sessions, to be around that community and to be going to receptions and everything with, with the precautions we needed to take. Um, it is a it's 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 a community that is sort of dedicated to to medical practice, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. orthopedic practice. And so I can't. They didn't do the numbers, but you were not allowed to register and be on site without proof proof of vaccination or a negative test within. I want to say forty eight hours. It may have been a smaller window. So we knew everyone on site was safe. Having said that, their attendance was about fifteen percent of what 
they normally get, you know, the, the normal attendance of that meeting in the last few years has been 23 to 25,000. Uh, they announced at the end of the meeting that it was 4,000. So mm. it, it did, mm. it did feel a little bit, uh, it did feel a little bit less than <laughs> previous meetings. The other side of that is they, you know, they want to get back on their normal schedule for 2022. So they're, they're, you know, the meeting's happening again in six months. They want to get back to the March schedule. So we'll, we'll see how that sort of plays out for the JBJS meeting side. So Miller review that has always been a live course held in Denver at a, at a convention area. It's a hotel, but the convention space within the hotel, somewhere between four and, and 500 residents gather for a week to you know, sort of drill and to to watch presentations from from our esteemed faculty on you know taking the written exam for orthopedic certification in 2020 we had to move that to 100% virtual um, we pulled it off with on short notice um, and I wouldn't say the majority but certainly not a small percentage of the attendees said this is great I can get what I need. And I don't have to be sort of away from the family or away from work. Some others said that's the purpose of it, to get away from the family and to get away from work so I can, so I can do this. So in 2021, we held a hybrid meeting. We had record attendance. We had better than 600 orthopedic residents and trainees. We had a combination of about 225 people on site and about 375 who attended remote, virtual live, uh, not recorded sessions. Uh, we, did, we did have one presenter who was not able to attend because his institution wouldn't allow it. Um, so that one was recorded. But it was, a, it was a huge success for us in 2021, not just because we were, uh, we were able to, to grow our attendance to, to record number, but because we were able to fulfill sort of our, our mission, I'm going to say it again, and, and do it in a way that best fit the needs of the customer. So are you, it sounds like you might be uh, going hybrid in the future then. We truly are. Yeah. And in fact, uh, yeah. the Miller Review course is one of those interesting courses that the day after we hold it in May each year, the, the residents who are moving from their fifth year PGY4 to PGY5s, are on us about when is registration for next year going to open? I've, I've been told I have to attend this. And so we've had registration open for a few months. And as of the 1st of September, we've had a record again for, for early registration numbers. And it's breaking down right now to about two thirds. And we've, we've asked their preference um, at registration. It's about two thirds on site, one third remote. But we're, you know, we're seven, eight months out. So we'll see as we get closer, if the next variant sort of causes disruption uh, to travel schedules, but we're prepared, whether that's 10% on site and 90% remote or 90% on site and, uh, and, and just the, the fledgling few who want to do it uh, virtually, um, we're prepared. And, and I think that's one of the other really good things to come out of being pressured in 2020 to do it, we, we wouldn't necessarily have taken um, that opportunity had it not been forced on us. I think uh, that's, that's rather amazing, I think, because I've talked to a lot of other people and they have had, somebody told me, well, we had, we had record, record uh, registration, but it was all, you know, the, the whole meeting was free. Right. And so 
um, okay, it, it was good. They had a lot of people, but now this year they tried it again virtually and it, it was pretty abysmal. So uh, yeah, it was a really not everybody interesting, works. Yeah, it was a really interesting part of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons meeting that prior to the meeting, there was no there was no major announcement. There was no particular promotion of post attendance recording and virtual attendance, if you will, sort of the post. But right after the meeting, I, I a couple of uh, emails from them saying, don't forget, you can now watch all the sessions uh, that have been pre-recorded. So I think they took the opportunity to say, we don't want to we're not in a position to provide a hybrid experience, but we also don't want those uh, if for you know, that, that had out, reasons outside of their control not to be able to attend. We don't want them to miss out on the opportunity. Well, we're going to kind of wrap it up here, but uh, I do want to ask you uh, what you see uh, high level for the future of scholarly publishing, at least more maybe in your area, but where it's going. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the one of the indicators of that for us um, is again we don't have members; we have sort of subscribers, and and what we've seen over the last three or four years is is a consolidating of that community of subscribers, right? Those that were on the periphery in the past and said, "Oh, I might need that," they're not as engaged for a variety of reasons. Primary, perhaps, being I can I can get it on demand and I can get it when I need it. Uh, the sort of just just in time as opposed to just in case model. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the industry as a whole is going to see a, a consolidation of from the institutional, the member and the individual level. You have to be able to provide for me what I need when I need it, not provide it and expect me to be there from the beginning. And I, I don't know that we're, that we're wholly prepared in 2021 um, to have all the, the, the technology and the marketing and the wherewithal to, to answer those, all of those questions in the short term. I think, luckily enough, the history of scholarly publishing says that we're not afraid of technology. We're not usually the first to adopt it, um, but we're not afraid of it. Um, and as uh, the sort of the on-demand world, just as with the virtual conferences that we've been able to pull off the last couple of years, um, just as we've we've adapted to those requirements, I think scholarly publishing will make the necessary changes to see that at the institutional, the individual, and the member level that we're we're fulfilling the current needs of authors, readers that. While the industry as a whole may not see the same level of growth uh, that it averaged, you know, over the last 50 years, um, that that it will continue to grow. Great. Well, thank you, Jason, for being part of the H Society podcast by Herex Digital today. Uh, would you please tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you if they need some help, advice, or uh, just have maybe more questions? Yeah, so uh, jbgs.org, you can certainly uh, log on, uh, see all of our content, see our different, uh, our different offerings, and I can be reached at jmiller at jbjs.org. Great. Well, thanks again, Jason. Uh, it's been great having you on and uh, talking to you. Maybe, uh, maybe uh, we'll have you in again to talk about um, 
some of our in the field experiences in scholarly publishing. So. It's great. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed it and uh, look forward to the next opportunity. Thanks, Scott. We hope this has helped our listeners gain some clarity on the machinations inside the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Should you have any questions about digital content, platforms, online learning for your society or association or nonprofit organization, <laughs> please check out our award-winning herex.com to learn more about how we help to manage it all securely. Don't forget to subscribe to the archive of the H Society's weekly podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you are listening from. Visit herex.com for more information on our season one guests and future episodes. Always my disclaimer, I'd love to tell you who some of our future guests will be, but their careers might be in jeopardy. Everyone stay safe, healthy, and thanks again, Jason, and to all of our listeners. And we'll be back again with our next podcast soon. This is Scott Hansen saying goodbye and take care. Thanks again. You've been listening to the H Society Podcast, presented by Hurix Digital. Hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to make sure you never miss an episode. To learn more about the ways people are making their organizations valuable for their members through digital technology, publishing, and continuous education, visit Hurix.com to learn more about future-ready digital solutions for publishers, enterprises, nonprofits and educational institutions.